From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 44th episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. And I am the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter. And like we always do, I have another amazing guest on the show, uh, Ruben Keith Green. I'm going to read a little bit about him, and then we're just going to go into some questions. Please feel free to post your questions in the chat, and uh, really looking forward to talking to him. So Ruben Keith Green is a retired Navy surface, Naval Surface Warfare Officer and former enlisted sailor. He served in the Atlantic Fleet from 1975 to 1997, including three ships and naval stations Mayport and Charleston and naval bases Jacksonville and Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and Commander Light Attack Wing 1-VA-37 at NAS Cecil Field, Jacksonville, Florida. His officership board assignments were communications officer on U.S. Voyage, engineer, uh, he was the Chang on USS Boone, and he was the XO on USS Gemini. He also served as the import training department head at Desron 8 Mayport and the base telephone office and facilities department head at Naval Telecommunications Station, Jacksonville. He is also the author of Black Officer, White Navy. And what I love most about Keith is that he's not afraid to call out discrimination in the armed forces, and he speaks his mind very frankly on social media and in his book. So welcome, Keith. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, thank you. So I always like to start off with people's origin story and, and why they joined the military. And I know a little bit, bit about it because I, I read it in the book. For, but for those of you who haven't read the book yet, will you give us just a little bit of a summary of why you decided to join the Navy? My father and my mother always supported my, uh, my uh, reading habit, so I asked them for a set of encyclopedias when I was in elementary school. And I was fascinated by the pictures of the naval officers in the encyclopedias. I wanted to be a naval officer from the time I was in elementary school. I want to be the guy that said, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, and all that stuff, you know. And they had some snazzy uniforms. And uh, I never noticed there were no black officers in the in the uh, in the encyclopedias, but I figured that that was just because they were old, you know. And right. uh, so um, I decided to join the Navy, and it was quite a shock to me when my father told me he. My father was a boatswain mate in the Navy, and he had served in the Korean War as a paratrooper uh, in the tank battalion, and he served in the Navy as a boatswain mate for uh, almost eighteen years total. And he got out of the Navy under bad terms. He was on his way to uh, his fifth trip to Vietnam and he decided he wasn't going back to Vietnam anymore. I think he had PTSD. So when his ship left Hawaii, he headed for uh, uh, Vietnam. He was on a plane with his family headed to uh, Florida. So he did not want me to join the Navy. Uh, he refused to sign the papers for me to join the Navy. Uh, when the recruiter showed up, they tried to talk him into coming back in. He said, there's no way I'm going back in the Navy and I'm sure as hell not signing the papers for him to go in. So it was one of those battle things. I joined the Navy because I wanted to prove my father was wrong. I had read about Admiral Zumwalt in the newspapers and in the Ebony and Jet magazines. And I said, well, this guy's changed everything. So that was old old news. So I'm just gonna go and join the Navy. So my mother and, my mother and stepmother signed papers for me to join and off I went. 
it didn't take me long to figure out that my father knew a lot more about the Navy than I did at that point. And uh, he said the Navy was too racist. He wasn't going to allow me to join. But um, that's how I got into the Navy. Wow, wow. So tell us a little bit about Admiral Zumwalt. I did not know any, a lot of, maybe some of the people who are even listening don't really know what his contribution was and, and how he fit into the overall uh, issues with race uh, in, in, during the Vietnam era and beyond. Well, when it comes to Admiral Zumwalt, he is the person, he and uh, Lieutenant Commander William S. Norman are the two people that are most responsible for bringing the Navy into the 20th century when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Admiral Zumwalt uh, did not know much about the uh, uh, service of black sailors until he got a letter from a lieutenant who was uh, resigning his commission, and he was a self-described hellraiser. He said uh, he was getting out of the Navy because of all of the discrimination and racism, racism that he had faced while he was on active duty. So Zumwalt uh, requested that uh, he, be, he was the CNO from 70 to 74. So he requested that that lieutenant who wrote that very frank letter uh, come see him before he decides to resign his commission. And when uh, Norman walked into Zumwalt's office, he walked in with a list of 20 demands that uh, he wanted met if he was going to go to work for Admiral Zumwalt. Zumwalt said, don't resign, stay here and help me make things better. So that's what happened. Zumwalt uh, met all 20 of Norman's demands and one of them was to eliminate the requirement that Filipino sailors could only serve in the uh, uh, Messman's branch, only serve as, uh, as uh, stewards and as uh, 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 messmen for, for officers. So Zumwalt signed that right away. And with one stroke of the pen, he eliminated uh, discrimination that allowed some of those stewards to eventually go on and become Navy captains. At least one became a Navy captain. So that was Zumwalt's contribution. He wrote uh, a lot of Z-grams. I read all of them when I was uh, in uh, Sigamella Sicily on deployment in 76. And I didn't learn as much about Zumwalt until I was in the library at the Naval Station Charleston and I picked up this biography that said, uh, on watch. And there was a picture of Admiral Zumwalt on the cover and I recognized it because he looked like a Klingon with all that gold on and the big hairy bushy eyebrows and stuff. All he needed was Spock ears and he would have been, uh, been perfect. But um, I read that book as a 19 year old and it was such an eye opener for me. I had no idea of all the political intrigue and the, the battles that were going on and uh, his contributions. He wrote three chapters uh, about uh, uh, personnel and the chapter that resonated with, with me the most was titled sailing second class and that's when he talked about uh what black sailors were enduring and how bill norman just continually educated him almost to the point of trauma of what was going on so Zumwalt tasked norman to write zgram number 66 which was the one uh, about equal opportunity and i learned reading the biography of larry uh, Zumwalt by larry berman that Bill Norman had to fight mightily to keep that from being watered down. It was a very straightforward, well-written document. It did not mince any words. And uh, Admiral Zumwalt's staff, a lot of people on Zumwalt's staff wanted to be watered down a little bit. Norman refused to do it. So that's something I learned reading uh, Larry Berman's biography of Zumwalt. So Admiral Zumwalt is, is primarily the reason I joined the Navy. And he's primarily the reason that I'm speaking out now because I was worried in 2016 that the Navy was going to start to go backwards because things go in cycles. Things tend to follow predictable patterns. And the 2016 election showed me that we were about to hit uh, 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 a nadir in terms of uh, race relations. And I, I don't think I was that far wrong. Right, right. Oh my gosh, yes. And 
what was it about just your background and your upbringing that fascinated you so much with research? That was the thing I was so impressed about your book is that you you don't just tell your story, you infuse so much of naval history and the history of race relations. And then you bring in the issues with gays and even with women. I mean, you, you really cover the gamut of, of diversity issues and almost like, like a historical analysis of diversity and race relations within the military. And I'm curious from your upbringing, what was it about the way you were raised that had you just so fascinated with, with it being able to, 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 to research like this? Well, part of it was the fact that my parents nurtured that uh, quest for knowledge in me. If I asked for books, they got them for me, even if they couldn't afford them. So part of that was just innate curiosity. And part of it was trying to understand why my father behaved the way he did in some instances. Uh, he was not an easy person to get along with. So I wanted to know, uh, and I was fascinated by the Vietnam War era because it was before my time, but just barely. I was in boot camp when Saigon fell. So I've always been curious about history. Uh, and I was raised, I wanted books on black history, I got them. So I learned at an early age that the stuff I was reading in the encyclopedia did not tell the whole story. The stuff I was reading in school did not tell the whole story. So my goal uh, in writing about my career was to wrap the rest of the story around my particular circumstances and get people to see the bigger picture beyond what was happening to one individual. And, and you really succeeded in that because as I'm reading your story, you're just constantly infusing some of those tidbits about some of the bigger issues in the strategic things that were going on during during that same time. I'm curious, as you started your down your journey into the Navy, um, how did you manage to just keep, one of the things I was so impressed by reading the book is that you managed to sort of keep your um, sense of humor intact, number one, and then number two, you, you handled things with such grace, and, but, you were, but you never stopped being like right there and, and very, very honest with people. And I'm curious, like, how, how you managed, one of the things you wrote in the book was, uh, you know, the power of the pen, you said. And I thought, oh, yeah, that, that's, and documentation. And, and, and is that part of what it was? Or what was, what were some of the ways in which you found to be effective in fighting back to the point where you're still within the system, but at the same time, you're, you're not letting the system own you? Well, the first thing I did was I would look at myself. What is it that I'm doing that is causing these things to happen? And if I couldn't figure out anything that I was doing wrong, I would start looking, you know, eliminate every possible thing it can be. And when you've got all you've got left is someone simply doesn't like you, then why do they not like you? Is it because of the color of your skin? Is it because of your personality? Whatever. But I would try to eliminate all of the possibilities, starting with myself. And that was very helpful to me because once I realized that I was doing everything that I was supposed to do to the best of my ability, then the problem had to be outside of my performance or my behavior. So that was helpful to me because I knew when I confronted someone that I was right <clears throat> or I tried to be right. And what I would do is I would ask someone, please explain to me why this is happening to me. Why are you treating, this way, treating me this way? And if they couldn't do it, I would say, well, we have to come up with an answer. So I think it has something to do with the color of my skin. If you can't come up with anything else, then there's got to be some issue there. But more often than not, I never had those conversations because I was able to show with documentation and writing that I was being treated differently than other people. And you can't argue with that. I mean, the data does not lie. So more than once, 
I was able to whip out a pen and uh, show someone or prove that something was happening to me that wasn't happening to other people. And then once that happened, action started to take place. Sometimes I'd have to go into a room full of people and start using profanity and pointing fingers if that was what was necessary. But uh, the circumstances would dictate that. Yeah, and, and you know what I'm hearing in your story too? It reminds me, you, you remind me a little of my husband. Like he holds himself accountable. So he holds everybody else to that same standard. So, you know, some people think he's he, he, he's an asshole. I hate to use that word, but I mean, he's, people think that sometimes about him and he's not at all. I have seen and, that movie and I starred in it too. <laughs> but really he just he has a standard and he, he follows that same standard. It's, it's very... You know, it's treating people with respect, treating them with kindness. Um, like you say, looking within yourself. Because sometimes, you know, we're, none of us are perfect. We all screw up. And, and, and really, I want to be better. So if, if it's something with me, I want to know that first. Fix what that is and, and, and then move on. Because like you said, you've eliminated every other possibility. Um, yeah, your, your story in the book about being at, at the bar where you didn't get the service and you wrote like the base officer or base commander and then the next thing exchange you, officer yeah yes the exchange officer and and then the next thing you know you go into the bar and and, and they act all different and they're like and, and you said you were a little bit annoyed by that and i thought that that was interesting yeah i mean because you weren't really asking anything other than what everybody else was the fact that you had to even do that is exactly. what is, is what is unfortunate so I, I like I told you earlier, I wasn't able to get through all of the book, but what I want to do is kind of move through a little bit about your career after um, I think I, I stopped where the Sicily section was after you were uh, stationed there. And then, oh, no. And then you went to Guantanamo Bay and you were a yeoman. Then you and then how did you go become an officer? Well, after I left uh, Guantanamo Bay, I, I applied for uh, to be an equal opportunity program specialist because some of the things I saw at uh, at, at Gitmo as a math gentleman was it was very disturbing to me. I saw how black sailors were treated differently than the white sailors, and some of them were able to prove that because they would pull pieces of paper out of their pocket and show that this person was late X number of times and he's never been written up, and I was late once or twice, and here I am standing in front of the captain. So the documentation, I witnessed that firsthand. And that was annoying to the captain because they didn't want to hear anything about discrimination. I had two captains. And anytime someone tried to bring up discrimination, they got shut down. So I said, and I kept all the statistics, what were called the Equal Opportunity Quality Indicators. And they showed on a quarterly basis that black people were being punished more harshly than white people. And I devised a system that's, that said, this is the amount of punishment that should be given for this particular offense. And that was what I would hand to the captain. And because the black sailors would often speak up and challenge what was happening, he would add additional punishment to that as mm -hmm. punishment for speaking up. So I saw all these, these things happening. It was very annoying to me. So I, I got a waiver and went to the Defense Equal Opportunity Management Institute as an E5. It was a minimum E6 assignment. They were desperate for equal opportunity people back then, so they took me. So I did two years in the... Uh, uh, equal opportunity field, which was very challenging. I, I uh, arrived in Jacksonville, Florida, surrounded by Confederate flags all over the parking lot. Uh, and uh, it was a very hostile environment for someone like me coming in in that particular building. Jacksonville, Florida is one of the three places <clears throat> on the East Coast that the Navy uh, uh, said that was unsuitable for minority personnel just a few years before. 
So it was a hotbed of hostility in terms of race relations. So I did two years in that job, barely survived. I went head to head with the master chief. He lost and he made it his business to try to destroy my career. And the guy that saved me is a guy named Master Chief Daniel J. Sapiro, Daniel Joseph Sapiro. He hates when I bring him up, but I'm going to keep doing it because he came in to be my boss and he pulled me aside. And he said, look, I'm hearing some things about you that are not matching what I'm seeing. He says, there are people here that are out to get you. He says, I want you to watch your ass. He said, but I'm going to take care of you. He had just graduated from the same school that I graduated from. So he had this four months of intense training on race relations, equal opportunity, communication, and whatnot. So he was primed to recognize what was happening to me. And I had seen people that had been top performers in one command come to another command, and the next thing you know, they're in all this trouble. And as an E5, I was having difficulty helping them because first thing my captain said to me when I checked in, he's a crusty old uh, maintenance officer. He says, we didn't have any race problems before you got here, and we're not going to have any now that you're here. So that set the tone for my uh, EO tour. Uh, but I managed to finish my bachelor's degree while I was in that tour, thanks to Zapiro, who allowed me to do an internship with IBM. And I was at the verge, I was in Death Valley. I was at the 10 year point. I was either, this is my going to be, uh, I was either gonna go to OCS uh, as a commissioned officer, or I was going to get out of the Navy and go to work for IBM because they wanted me to come work for them. Uh, so when I left that job, I had these lukewarm, mediocre evals. When I checked in the light attack wing one under Captain James T. Matheny, uh, the guy just loved me. I would uh, make suggestions for his writing, and I started making so many suggestions. He just called me and he said, Petty Officer Green, he says, you know what I'm trying to say. Just stop bothering me and fix it. I mean, that was a big plus for a wounded duck like me coming from the tour that I did. So those people really looked out for me. He wrote me a glowing uh, endorsement for OCS, and off I went, OCS in uh, 1984. Wow, wow, what an it really goes to show you that, unfortunately, I, I don't feel, and maybe there's not an easier way to do it. We do have some people that are on the call, by the way. Um, I should have gotten over to them uh, sooner, so I apologize. But uh, my uh, friend Vicki, she says, uh, the United States as a whole, when you were talking about 2016, is trying its best to go backwards. And uh, she also says, I wish more people were open to self-analysis, like Mr. Green. The world would be an amazing place. And uh, Tony Williams Ellsworth says, how's it going, Ruben? So, Hi, um, <laughs> so we have a few people that are joining in. Um, but what really spoke to me as you were kind of going through that is sort of the way in which, unfortunately, we are judged in the military by how well we're liked, not sometimes by how much we can perform and what we bring to the table. And, and unfortunately, it's, that's just the bias is, that's inherent into the evaluation system. Would you have, and I'm curious, do you, would you have a different way based on what you know about EO and race relations and things and bias, do you think there is a different way that we could evaluate people within, within an organization if it wasn't based on what their supervisors wrote about them? I think that evaluation should be more data-driven than personality-driven. What is this person contributing to uh, the organization. I'll give you a perfect example. When I was at Ensign, my first ship, USS Bogey, we were top heavy with Ensigns. We had like 10, 10 11 Ensigns. I'm the only black officer on the ship. <clears throat> I'm the only one that uh, was a, an LDO, not an LDO, but former enlisted. So uh, I had a lot of competition. 
And one of the things I did, and I, I started this early on in my career, I would read every instruction in the ship's instruction binder, and then I would read every instruction in the uh, the uh, base wherever we were. I would read all of that stuff. So one of the things I did was I learned that I could go over to the Defense Reutilization and Manage, uh, Materials Office and sign for stuff that was being uh, available to be signed out to ships. So I went over on my lunch break one day while the rest of the ensigns were over at the O Club having a liquid lunch. And I signed for two truckloads of material and brought it back to the ship. And it was a total of $70,000 worth of stuff. So I walked on board the ship and said, uh, XO, here's a bunch of stuff for you. There's stuff for all the departments. And I got a bunch of stuff for me. And I got some stuff for your ship's office and what have you. And he's staring at me like, where did you get all this stuff? So I just went and signed for it. So the captain was very happy. Uh, and that was definitely a bullet point that went into my evals. Uh, and I happened to be a communications officer and CMS custodian, high visibility job at that point because of the John Walker spy scandal. And one of the other points I made uh, sure that I did was whenever I went in to see the XO or the CO, I would occasionally stop and say, am I doing something that you don't want me to do? And am I not doing something that you want me to do? So I would get feedback throughout the evaluation period because I didn't want any surprise that came time for uh, a fitness reports. Yeah, that's so smart. And we don't do that. So sometimes, um, you know, we're all required to have these um, midterm counseling. And I can't tell you how many times I don't get midterm counseling. And and you're right. You don't want a surprise on your fit rep that you weren't counseled for. And that's another thing that I tell people. I say, if you get an eval that or a fit rep that isn't what you think and you've had no opportunity to be given any feedback, um, that's a problem. And, 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 that, and that, that is not the place to be telling you uh, those issues. And uh, John uh, is actually joining us too. And he had, he had a question that's kind of along the same lines, uh, John, John Cordy. He says, what actions can we take as leaders to recognize and deal with racism or bias? That's Captain John Cordell. He's my unofficial sea daddy and my running buddy. We have been uh, doing some diversity and inclusion stuff together. The only reason most people have heard of me is because of him. So I want to give a shout out to him as well. He, he's just a living example of what sponsorship looks like. What what major leaders can do is they need to start listening to what's being said by the people that are experiencing the problems, whether they be women, whether they be uh, you know LGBTQ people, whether they be minorities, uh, or just someone who's trying to to you know to make suggestions for making the system better. If you listen to people and if you ask questions, then you act on that information you've received. And if that doesn't fix the problem, you will get feedback from that. But once people see that you're willing to entertain uh, their thoughts and ideas and suggestions, um, then you can start making changes. But more often than not, the people that are supposed to be listening turn into lecturers telling you, well, it's not as bad as it was and you're giving the Navy a bad name or whatever. I'm trying to help. I got no dog in this fight other than trying to make it better for the people that uh, that have come after me. And one of the places I learned that was reading something that John Cordell wrote. One of his uh, mentors uh, said that he would ask questions. How are you doing? And he would follow up that question with another question. And he got tons of information uh, that way. And John did the same thing. And I, I, I try to do the same thing myself. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true, so true. Um, so let's dive a little bit back into your story again. So after you uh, served as a divo and 
you you had some wins in, in that in, the, in that area. You went on to a, a few other ships. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I was uh, <clears throat> wanting to get promoted early. I had 10 years in the Navy, and there was no way I was going to command my own ship unless I jumped out ahead of the pack. I wanted to be captain of my own ship. So I, in my spare time while I was a communications officer, CMS custodian, I would go down into engineering and learn the engineering plant. So I qualified as a, a, a steam engineer while in a communications officer building. And I'm the only person on the ship outside of the engineering department that did that. And uh, some of the engineers didn't even qualify. So uh, my captain, J.D. Barton, told me that, uh, Keith, you should go to department in school. They wanted to send me to one of those carry improvement program jobs, which would have been just brutal, uh, as you see from the George Washington stories. And he said, you should go to department at school. So I reported department at school as a JG, graduated as a proc lieutenant, and reported to my first ship two weeks before it headed to restaurant and get me. I'm the only black officer on the ship. And it was like walking into a bus. It was a very hostile environment. And we left and went to uh, refresher training and I was so exhausted. I had a battle with uh, the captain. I, I told the captain, there was a senior chief running that department when I got there because the engineer had been fired. So I step in with this crusty old senior chief who's used to being the chief engineer on a frigate, which is a plum job for him. And then this black guy shows up that used to be a yeoman, you know, can barely find his way from the bow of the stern. And he didn't want to listen to me. So after a few uh, problems with that, I went up to the captain and I told him, Captain, I want you to send uh, the senior chief back to the squadron. I've got this. Um, and I said, he's not listening to me. And if he's not going to listen to me, then I want him gone. So he starts yelling and screaming at me about what a fine man the senior chief was, et cetera, et cetera. I said, Captain, that's fine. I said, but either you, either he's going to listen to me or I'm going to pack my bags and put them on the pier because I didn't come here to work for the senior chief. So you're either going to treat me like I run this department or I'm leaving. And I meant it. I was going to go down and pack my bags and go stand on the pier. So you have to make a stand at some point. And that was after a period of time where I had a first class that I had a run in with on the mess decks, you know, gave me the one finger salute in front of everybody on the mess decks when he thought I wasn't looking. And it was just a, a combination of things. About a weekend of ref tray, I was so exhausted from what I was going through. I had a diesel explode, I had all the personnel issues and uh, so forth. And uh, I just passed out from exhaustion right there at Central Control Station while doing drills. And when I woke up, the captain's standing over me and I'm laying there trying to get up. And he says, Chang, how long has it been since you've had any sleep? And I said, I don't know. So he ordered me to my rack and I must have slept about eight or nine hours. And uh, that's probably more sleep than I'd had in the two weeks prior. So it was just an awful time. But I survived that tour. I did 22 months of that tour. Had a problem with the supply officer right after we're supposed to go on a deployment. And I had an engine uh, gas turbine module uh, explosion. I had the uh, exhaust plenum uh, explosion on my ship, ruptured the reduction gear. It was just a horrible thing, a million dollars worth of repairs. Plus, I had a prototype shaft seal that I talked Surfland into installing because the one that was on the ship kept failing. So I wrote these Nobel Prize worthy CAS reps saying that I don't want this ship to sink in the middle of the Persian Gulf. So they spent a million dollars putting that prototype seal in. But my supply officer was not ordering the parts that I needed. And I couldn't figure out why my parts were getting delayed, slowed down, not ordered, canceled, not have to reorder them. 
talked to the COXO, all the department heads. I'd already read all the instructions. I got a 4.0 in supply management when I was in uh, Divo school, department head school. So something is not adding up here. I talked to the supply officer. He turned his nose up at me and just basically just blew me off. So I finally sat down one night with my supply petty officer and I made a spreadsheet of my 25 most critical parts. And I had to go into different sections of the 3M system and pull out all this information and put it on one sheet. The only way you could see the big picture was to create a document that showed what it was. The data was there, but you had to hunt for it to put it in front of someone so they could see it. So when I was done, I was dumbfounded. It was about uh, uh, 6.30 that morning, and I couldn't wait for the captain to get there because I wanted him to see how capricious this behavior was and what it was doing to the on-time deployment uh, schedule of this ship. So when, I, when the captain showed up, I walked in. I said, Captain, I've been telling you I need help. You will not help me. If you don't start helping me, this ship isn't going to deploy on time. You're going to have to explain that to somebody. You're not going to be able to blame me because I've told you I need help and no one is helping. So I would like to go over this parts list and show you what's happening. So we started going through the list and he's asking me all these questions about why hasn't this been ordered? Why was this canceled? Why is this sitting there for three days? And I needed the supply department to do what they needed to do before I could file the casualty list. He's hot under the collar now because he can finally see it. He calls the supply officer up there. And in short order, the supply officer has been yelled at and told to get down there and order all those parts today. Well, no one would listen until I could show them today the data. So after that, the captain wanted to see that report every day. He says, I want this updated every day. So now I'm having to do this, you know, almost all night work every day. It got easier as time went on. But then he says, I want you to teach the rest of the department that's how to do this. And I want it from them every day. Well, now they're mad at me because they're having to do all this extra work. Yeah. They weren't having any trouble getting their parts. I was the only one. So I wound up bearing the brunt of that as well because all I did was fight to get treated the same way they did. And they resented having to do extra work. But none of them spoke up saying, hey, I don't know why Keith's having a problem. Maybe there's a problem. Yeah, I'm getting my parts. I mean, somebody could have spoken up and said, I'm not having any issues with my parts. Yeah, that's, that's, oh, that's so frustrating. And that, that's a lack of accountability on the, on the part of the CO for not holding the supply officer accountable for, for not giving you what you needed and instead just punishing everybody else with maybe a report that maybe they didn't need to produce. Uh, that, that's something that we're definitely seeing a lot of in the military right now is a lack of accountability. And, you know, we've seen people who've addressed it. Some ways we agree with, some ways we don't, but there are a lot of people that are talking about it. And, and what I, I guess I want to know, I want to get back to your story on how you got out of the military. I'm still very, very curious about your journey uh, towards the end of your career. But before I do that, because I kind of like to sprinkle in some of the stuff that are the main themes of the talk. What is it that you think that needs to be done to fix some of the accountability issues that we're presently seeing in the Navy? And can you name some of those examples offhand? Well, I, could name, I could name several. The okay. first thing we need to do is we need to finish, complete removing the symbols that are detrimental to good order and discipline. The Navy okay. named a ship after an avowed segregationist. Uh, the, the father of the white supremacist movement, which is Mississippi Senator John C. Stennis. I'm reading his biography right now, and it's quite an eye-opener. I've read the dissertation that was written about him, and I wrote an article in Proceedings about the case for renaming the John C. Stennis. It is unconscionable to send people to serve on a ship 
is named after an avowed white supremacist who never, to the end of his days, uh, disavowed his white supremacist views. He never apologized. He never said that he was wrong. And uh, I just think that's unfortunate. And how can you say we support diversity and inclusion when we forced sailors to go serve on a ship that was named after somebody like that? He was one of the senators that fought back and uh, pushed back against the army when they banned the Confederate flag in Vietnam because a general said that we're tearing ourselves apart because they were having Klan rallies, cross burnings, Confederate flags, et cetera, et cetera. And the army banned the Confederate flag. John C. Stennis was one of those powerful people that said no, uh, and they reversed that. So, um, that's one very tangible example. I think you have a phone call. Okay. Oh, you just your your screen just turned on me, Keith. Can you hear me? Well, folks, we'll give him just a couple seconds here. Still there? Oh, there he is. I'm still here. Yep. Can you hear me? Oh, totally. And now we're more aligned in our, in our profiles. So what I was going to ask you, okay, so the John C. Stennis is definitely one tangible example of, of something. And that's something I... I, I, I can't always... hear you right now. Okay. I can see you, but I can't hear you. Yep, I'm I'm here. Can can everybody in the chat hear us? Okay, if someone's watching in the chat, just let me know if you guys can hear me. I can hear you, Keith. Oh, I think I lost him there. So we'll give him a couple more seconds to come on here. And uh, but if you guys are uh, enjoy, okay, thanks, Sandy. But yeah, if you guys are enjoying the uh, the conversation, uh, please share. I'll probably end up cutting this little part, this little technical difficulty uh, out at the end of the conversation. We'll see if we can get him back here in just a second. But thank you all for joining us. Thank you, uh, Captain Cordell. I think appreciate that. Hopefully he can, he can, thanks. Thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, Alex. And thank you, uh, Luch, Luciano, Benjamin. Thank you. Um, but here, I'll give you guys a quick update on, on uh, how things are going on my end. I got about another month left here in uh, Germany. That's where I'm coming to you from. Hopefully, we'll get Ruben back here for just a moment. And so uh, about 7.35 p.m. here. And uh, yeah, so coming back in, yeah, in the beginning of June and then leaving to go to over to England. So uh, going to really enjoy the, the next month i've got another trip this weekend i'm going to, a trip within a trip to turkey for a public affairs conference for nato so that's going to be exciting um but yeah hopefully we can get ruben back on here it was really i really want to know what some of his other ideas are to, to fix to fix the military when it comes to this issue it's such an important issue and it's something i've been wanting to talk about for quite a while so there can you, you are i can hear you can you hear me can you hear me? Oh, you just muted you muted yourself. Okay, you're unmuted. Okay. Keith, can you hear me? I know, Mr. Mr. Dossman, thank you so much for saying. Not that. sure what's going on. I can see you. Can you hear me? I uh, yes. I cannot yes. hear you. Okay. All right. Um How about now. There. Can you hear me? 
I can hear you. Hey guys, thanks so much for your patience with us as, as we, we figure out these technical problems. Sometimes this stuff happens and you just gotta roll with it. Um, uh, is it my first rodeo? Now I'm I can hear you now. Awesome. I was like, okay. no, I an episode before and, and uh, this is this is old hat to me. So uh, nothing to be um, nothing to be worried about. I want to go back to our conversation because it was so good. So first, I did not know that about John Sten John C. Stennis. Did not know he 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 has he had a history of being a white supremacist. And uh, that's definitely gonna give me something to think about as we uh, are you petitioning that the current Stennis be be renamed? Is that is that sort of your your proposal based on based on this as, as something yeah. to yes. Yeah. I don't believe that considering all of the issues, the initiative the Navy has put forth, I don't believe that it's proper to continue to have sailors report to a ship named after someone with John C. Stennis's history. And uh, that sends that sends a bad signal. Uh, yeah. One of the, one of the other things that I want to do is the Navy needs to acknowledge that there is a pattern of denial of complaints of discrimination. I have researched this all the way back as far as I can, all the way back to the Vietnam War and before. You know, it was almost impossible to get a case of discrimination documented in the military in the Vietnam War. They sent IG teams over and they put together these uh, uh, equal opportunity offices out of all the complaints that were filed, there were only four that found that uh, black sailors were being discriminated against or, or airmen or, or soldiers, but race was not an issue in that case, which is just crazy. I'll give you another example. In 1989, uh, in 1988, the Chief of Naval Operations said there was widespread bias and discrimination against the blacks in the military and in promotion. It was in the New York Times, they had a report 173 different recommendations. That was never made public. In 1989, when I was the chief engineer fighting all those battles, I could have filed a discrimination complaint about, on average, about once every three weeks. But in 1989, the Navy substantiated zero of 156 complaints. So they started out with uh, six complaints in 87 that were substantiated, three in uh, 88, and zero in 89. Or oh, that's percentages. So the Navy was going backwards. The more you talk, talked about and pointed out this information, the more intransigent and reluctant to acknowledge the truth uh, there was. Now they don't even publish that information. I put a lot of statistics in my book, but after my book came out about the discrimination complaint process, all of that information was stripped from the annual defense force, the addendum to the annual defense report. You can't find it anywhere except in the boxes that I have in my house. You mean to tell me that there's no way to know how many complaints of discrimination have been filed in the military? Like you, like you can't, I mean, I know you can only speak for Navy, but you can't, like if you wanna know how many racial discrimination complaints have been filed through the IG process, there's, there's no way to know that, and then how many of them were substantiated? There is no way to determine how many uh, formal discrimination complaints were filed, substantiated or not substantiated. As I said, it used to be included as part of the annual defense report because Congressman Ron Dellums did a tour of military bases in the uh, late 80s, early 90s because he was getting all delusion with all these complaints. And he submitted a, a, a congressional letter to the Department of Defense and they were required to include that information 
in the annual defense report up until about 2006. When I requested that information from DOD in 2007, I got a letter back saying that they were no longer uh, required to report that information to Congress. But, uh, once Ron Dellen retired, that requirement quietly, excuse me, went away. I filed a FOIA request about three years ago for all of that information. The Air Force gave me 350 pages of discrimination complaints from E2s to 09s. There were complaints that were filed and substantiated. Some were and some were not. But you could look at exactly what the trend was. I mean, 350 pages. The Navy gave me zero. They didn't even acknowledge my request. The Coast Guard, same thing. I got some from the Marines and some from the Army. But I was trying to fill in the gaps between what I already knew. There's a huge gap in the Obama years. It's uh, the first couple of years of the Obama years, you can see a little bit. But the last uh, six years of the Obama period, there's no way to know unless you have access to that data. And I think it's important to look and see what was happening during that time frame, because the number shot up dramatically uh, in 2016, 2017. There was a huge jump in uh, 2017 in discrimination complaints. And it was because of the tone being set at the top of the leadership and the climate. And I don't know what's happened since then because they won't give me the information. But I think it's important to just lay that out on the table and say, what is causing this jump in the complaints? I do know that when the Navy started these initiatives and the other services started these initiatives, the Navy took uh, testimony from people and then they filtered it through uh, someone writing down what they'd been told. The Air Force asked for written documentation or stories of discrimination. They got 27,000 single space pages. That doesn't exist in the Navy. So the first thing you have to do is determine where are the discrimination problems happening? And that's an accountability level uh, that has to start with leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, Vicki Lynn just said this, you know, how long service you wait if there's no data being tracked. And, and that, that's something I've always wondered, even within the judicial system, is that if we don't make investigations public to a certain degree, then how do people even know what the issues are? I mean, not to make light of, of, this, of a celebrity trial, but we're all talking about the Johnny Depp case because we can see it. We can see the legal process on television. We can see things playing out in a, tran in a transparent way. How are we supposed to know how to fix discrimination in the military if we're not able to see these investigations, if we're not able to see the complaints <clears throat> or understand what the issues are? And this goes back to sharing your story and how you shared your story and how brave you were to come forward. But it seems like even with you, it really wasn't bravery. This is just who you are. <laughs> you know, you're just, you're this type of person. And what do you have to say to people who are afraid to share their stories of being sexually harassed or discriminated against? Um, and they're afraid of the retaliation that they're gonna face. Is there a way that they can still share their story? I think, Fear is an important factor, but I also think that the fact that I chose at the end of my career to pull a valid documented complaint because I was afraid they were going to try to bury me and, uh, and uh, impact my retirement and so forth. Uh, I personally experienced that fear. So all I can tell you is I spent 20 years suffering uh, low self-esteem and anger because rather than fight like I'd been taught to. The Navy taught me how to fight, but when I fought for myself, they, they retaliated against me, abandoned me. So I would tell people that if you don't speak up for yourself, 
you're going to pay for it uh, psychologically and emotionally and potentially financially for years to come because you choose not to. And the fact that you speak up on more than one occasion, I was on the verge of being court-martialed because I spoke up sometimes inappropriately. You know, I mentioned before, setting your own ass on fire is not necessarily the best way to affect change, but I have done it. <laughs> so it's more important that you speak up because sometimes you can get through to people and sometimes you can't. But if you're gonna, you know, you're gonna go out, you might as well do it with the right on your side. I agree. And I think there's ways to do it and, and, and still keep your job intact. And that's, you know, building supporters, um, building coalitions of people that have your back, cultivating those relationships with those mentors that see who you truly are and understand what you're about. So let's, let's, let's rewind a little bit. And now I want to get into that story that you just touched upon. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was that, that led to you eventually getting out of the military and, and how, did, how did that situation play out? I had completed uh, three department ed tours. I got a call from a detailer, flag detailer, and he wanted me to uh, come on board as a flag aide. And I told him, he called me at home one night, and I said, look, uh, I'd love to take that job, but I can't shave every day because I have PFB. I have to shave every two or three days. I've explained that to all my bosses, and I didn't use a razor because it, it created too much havoc on my face. So I would use a depilatory powder about every three days. So I'd have a five o'clock shadow for a couple of days and I'm clean shape. Always inspection ready when that was necessary. And I told him, I said, I don't want to go to work for the wrong guy that doesn't understand that. So if that is acceptable to you, then I, you know, I'll come on board. Well, they never called me back. So the fact that I couldn't shave every day took me out of the running for a job that might have led me on to you know, bigger things. So I accepted a job, <clears throat> my first shore duty, I did uh, three back-to-back -back ships and a, uh, uh, a float-going staff. So I was pretty tired at the end of that. So I go to this shore duty job. I'm supposed to be running the base telephone office. And I walk in, and <clears throat> as I'm walking down the passageway to check in, the executive officer comes running up to me and says, hey, uh, you know, Commander Keith, he says, uh, you know, there's been a change. The captain wants you to take this job uh, as the uh, total quality leadership coordinator. And I had just spoken to my sponsor about 30 minutes before. So I, I was just shocked at, you know, why did this change happen all of a sudden? So I asked him, so well, XO, I said, I just spoke to my sponsor, why the change? And he wouldn't look at me. He says, well, the captain thinks you'd be better suited for this job, a better fit for this job. And I had been on the TQL uh, executive steering committee at my last command. That was a job I could have done with one arm tied behind my back. So I was going to be relieving an ensign. That was her only job. And she had two subordinates that were part-time employees. So it was not a high priority for the captain. And he walks me over to this closet and I look in, there's boxes all over the floor. There's not a desk, there's nothing. So basically it was just a stand-up uh, uh, position. And I couldn't understand why this happened all of a sudden. So uh, I met the captain. He wasn't real interested in talking to me. He, you know, so uh, a few minutes after that, after everything settled down, I went and said, uh, I'd like to see the captain's biography. And they handed it to me. And he was born, raised, and educated in the great state of Alabama, graduated from college in 1971. He was operating on the principles that he learned as a child in 30 years, almost 30 years in the Navy, without having to deal with any black officers. I assume that he made that decision because of the color of my skin. But I took the job, and I started you know, hit the ground running. 
he assigned me to go to uh, investigate a uh, IG complaint against one of his subordinate CEOs overseas. I did a very detailed, finally written uh, account of that. A lot of accountability because they were trying to railroad this kid, getting a mental health evaluation, trying to get him uh, kicked out of the Navy. And he was he was trying to make chief. He's taking the test for chief. Took away security clearance, the whole nine yards is access. So I was able to show that he was being retaliated against for something that he had done correctly, but uh, caused the command some embarrassment. So when I get back from that, uh, the captain's not happy with the report that I wrote, but it's factual, it's accurate, and it's, you know, it's all documented. So he calls me and he wants to have a discussion with me about, you know, welcome aboard. I've been there for almost three weeks now and he, he hasn't uh, welcomed me aboard yet. So I walk in his office and he's giving me his command philosophy and so forth. And he asked me, uh, Keith, have you thought about going to department at school? And I looked at him, I was, I was, you know, surprised by the question. I said, excuse me, I want to make sure I heard him right. He said, have you thought about going to department at school? So I said, Captain, I said, this is my fourth department ed tour. I said, I was chief engineer on a frigate. I was XO on a hydrofoil and I was the import training officer here at, at Mayport. Put out a message every week of my name on it. I said, you know, um, the only reason I'm not going to XO afloat is because I'm so junior. I went to department at school as a JG, and there's a bunch of guys in the pipeline ahead of me. The Navy had shrunk, was, uh, was shrinking now, so the 600-ship Navy was going away. So there was a fight for the remaining billets. And I was so junior that they weren't going to move me ahead of all those other guys, even though I'd earned the, earned the right to go, and I wanted to go. So I said, uh, as I'm telling him my background, his, his mouth drops open, and he starts looking at me like he's never seen me before. And when I finished, I said, didn't you read my record? And he kind of got red faced and he looked away and says, well, well, no. And I'm thinking, why are you asking me these questions if you haven't even bothered to look at my service record? Well, a few days after that, he announces at a staff meeting that he's going to use this superstar surface warfare officer that he's been assigned to run the telephone office, which was the job I was supposed to take in the first place. And then he announces that I'm also going to put him in charge of the facilities department. So I went from a guy that couldn't handle one job to now I've got the two busiest jobs on the on the uh, staff, but he's only going to give me one paycheck. So that did not sit well with me. And so when he asked me, he says, well, you know, I didn't ask you uh, how you felt about that. So just in a matter of, you know, disgust, I said, well, when you get around to asking me, I'll let you know. So that didn't go over well, but I was being treated very poorly on both ends of that transaction. Uh, so. After about 90 days, he left. I got a new boss, uh, and that's when the trouble really started. Meanwhile, this, the comptroller, who was a former Marine, started behaving in the same way that the supply officer did when I checked into that uh, first uh, department head tool. He was denying me the resources that I needed to do my job. I was running the telephone office. I put in a requisition for a telephone, and when it came in, he gave it to somebody else and said he'd order me another one. I never got a telephone, and I'm running two departments, so I had to use my own personal cell phone. That's that's beyond a microaggression. The other thing he did was I needed uh, uh, equipment and stuff for the office that I initially took over, and I, I found a bunch of file cabinets and stuff in, in the warehouse, and I said, I'd like to get these. He said, put in a requisition. I put in the requisition. I never got any of the stuff. So I just took my pickup truck and went out in town and bought a couple of uh, military surplus file cabinets and stuff and brought them back, put them in my office. I wasn't going to let this guy slow me down or stop me. So it was a constant battle 
he would delay my requisitions for all sorts of stuff. It's the same thing. Resource denial was one way that people used to try to make me fail or make me look bad. So, um, but the next guy was, I think he was unstable. I name him in the book. I mean, lots of people have read it, uh, said I could be sued, et cetera, et cetera. I'm happy to go to court. Let's, let's go. My entire five-page complaint is right there at the end of the book. So um, he was doing the same sorts of things to me. And finally, after almost a year, nine months of working for this guy, we had a confrontation. And I said, I want to know why you're treating me this way. I had saved him from, uh, it's, it's, it's quite detailed in, in the book, but I'd saved him from making a huge mistake. And he tasked me to write two point papers that were, should have been done by the comptroller, the guy that was denying me the resource. I refused to write those papers. I said, I don't have the background, I don't have the expertise, I don't have the knowledge, and that's not my job. That's his job to fix these issues. So he ordered me to do it. So I spent all this time learning all this complex stuff, talking all these support commands that were saying they didn't have to pay for the telephone service. And I put together these two point papers that distilled all this information down into something people can understand. Well, then uh, I sent it to the XO, and the XO calls me over uh, to his office and said, this is great. I can even understand this. And he said, let's go see. I sent it to the captain. Let's go see what he says. So I walk into the captain's office, and he hands me this piece of paper that he's sending to his boss, which had been my previous boss, the guy from Mississippi. And in that uh, email, he's saying what a great job that the executive officer has done distilling all this complex financial information into these two succinct point papers. And this should fix the problem with all the telephone payment, uh, bill payments. And I'm sitting there thinking, I just did all this work and he's going to give credit to the XO. And so I said, Captain, um, I don't mind the XO getting credit here, but I'm the one that actually wrote those papers. So I'd like to be included as part of the solution. So he snatches the paper out of my hand and says, well, in that case, they're unsat because they're more than one page. So my work went from outstanding as long as someone else was getting credit for it to unsatisfactory when I wanted to be included as far as solution. So that's the day I went home and uh, he rewrote the email and said that the problem had been fixed. This should fix the problem. Didn't give credit to anyone. So as far as anyone knew, the comptroller had written. So I was completely out of the picture. So I was, I had it by that point. So I spent the next week I went home, I went back to my office at about 1700 that night and at 0800 the next morning, I was still writing out my complaint. I'd been keeping very detailed documentation of what was happening to me because that's what I do. You know, former yeoman, right. former investigator, former EO specialist. I knew how to write a complaint. Right. never thought I would have to as a lieutenant commander. I spent the next week refusing to go to meetings, refusing to take phone calls, refusing to do anything. I'd stayed in my office working on my complaint. I wouldn't send anyone to the meetings and I wouldn't go. I had to go brief the admiral about the telephone situation. So I showed up for that and the captain shows up and he says, this is the first time I've ever gone to brief an admiral and I didn't know what I was going to tell him. So I looked at him and I said, well, I had other priorities. And I watched his face go white because now he's thinking, what is this guy up to? He called me over his office and he wanted to talk. So I spent about 10 minutes going over my treatment at that command I was getting emotional because it was very difficult reliving all this stuff without any answers. And I finally said, I want to know why I'm being treated this way. I've been a team player everywhere I've been. This doesn't make any sense. You need to tell me why this is happening. So he leaned back in his chair and he smirked and he said, well, do you feel like a second class citizen? 
And I was dumbfounded at the question. He was enjoying himself. And that's when I said, no, but I feel like I'm being treated like that. So I went back to my office. I added that little bit to my complaint. The next morning, I handed it to the XO. And that's when uh, the clock started ticking. He had 48 hours to respond to my complaint. And it was supposed to go to the general court martial authority. The same admiral who called me and chewed me out and told me I didn't know what I'm talking about. Um, he, he ordered a, a, a Naval Audit Service performance audit on me and my department. We came through with flying colors. So then he backed off and uh, told me he wanted me to come work for him. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> so to make a long story short, Admiral Borda committed suicide five days after I filed my complaint. So it was a very tumultuous time for the Navy. I saw that he wasn't going to respond. So I called the Admiral's Chief of Staff and let him know that this complaint was coming. And he listened to what I had to say. And then he said, you know, sir, I'm going to, he said, son, I'm going to recommend that you handle this within your own command. So it was his job to process that complaint, but they were washing their hands of it. Now, they had no problem calling the Secretary of the Navy when they thought I wasn't performing. But when I'm telling them someone else isn't performing, they want nothing to do with it. So I was completely demoralized by then. Admiral Borda had just committed suicide, in part because he was getting a lot of pushback on the minority and diversity issues, the women issues, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just decided at that point, I've had enough. I've got 22 years in the Navy. I'm going to have a bullseye on the back, uh, my back the rest of the time in the Navy if I don't get out. So I just decided to go ahead and retire because I was worried about them doing something underhanded to undermine me, and, uh, which has happened. And uh, so I just put in my papers and retired. And I didn't want anything to do with the Navy for 20 years after that. I wanted no retirement ceremony. I wanted nothing. One of my subordinates put me in for a meritorious service medal, uh, unbeknownst to me. And the same guy that was discriminating against me bumped it down to a Navy Achievement Medal. And I stood there and watched him get a meritorious service medal, listing all the things that I had done in bringing in the phone switch on time, I had 12 or 13 innovations that they, they used throughout the Atlantic fleet based on what my department was doing. So I watched him get this medal. And then he goes off to a ship, a uh, frigate in Japan, and uh, tormented and terrorized a bunch of people there. And uh, some of them wrote about it in, uh, in uh, one of the uh, ship buddy websites. One said that uh, um, he's the worst commanding officer he ever had in, in 18 years of service. And the other said that, uh, did you notice how much the, the cane mutiny played when he was a skipper? <laughs> so, so, but um, I, I did, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't think that when people are not held accountable and they, they don't, there's no, there's no motivation for them to see right. when they just, when we keep pressing, moving them around. And, uh, you know, that, that's exactly what Captain Cordell here says is, is you know, he says, uh, what can be done? to improve uh, transparency and racism, transparency of racism and racist behavior events. Um, well, first of all, there is, there is no definition of racism that I can find within the DOD. The first thing you have to do is identify and define what exactly is racism. That Marines two-star that was uh, 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 reprimanded for using racist language and racist tropes to his troops, and then saying, go ahead and call the HR department, I'm the head of HR. That was racist behavior, but he was not charged with being a racist or racist uh, discriminatory behavior. 
it was loss of confidence and command or whatever, creating an un unhealthy command climate. If no one knows what racism is, then how can you hold anyone accountable for it? Right. Well, I think the Navy, the DOD needs to uh, come up with a uniform code of military justice charge for racism and then the accompanying specification that, that will lay it out because no one knows where the line is. Mm -hmm. If the Navy was having widespread bias and discrimination in 1989 and 88, but they can't find a single case of discrimination, it's because they, they haven't defined it. So no one knows what it is. I have a book and it's called uh, a New York, uh, it's called Captain's Mask. Uh, New Jersey Yankee in the Confederate Navy, 1950 to 1954. And it's written by a white Polish guy and Bill Machowski. And he says he learned when he came into the Navy that disrespect was whatever one of the Southern petty officers said it was. And he talks about going to Captain's Mass and getting in all kinds of trouble because the petty officer didn't like him because he was a Yankee. And in that entire book, the only time he says anything about blacks, he says, um, the black sailors, I had it bad, but the black sailors on the ship had it far worse than I did. So we're talking 50 to 54. I can attest to the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And if we still don't have a definition of racism and discrimination in the military, you're never going to hold people accountable because the goalposts are too movable. I agree. I agree. And I think that also what makes it hard for, for, for women or, or minorities or, or to feel included or to be able to pull out bias and discrimination is that there's not enough people at the top who who are women and are people of color. And so, you know, I've said this before, I really don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of admiral mentors. I've never worked for um, any any female leaders that are still in who have, who, who, who are now the, the GOFO rank. My my mentor is a. It, well, she just put on. It was just found out she made 06. and and my being friends with her has has become a game changer. I never had a friend like her before, and now she's like helping me with how I word emails, how I how I stand up for myself if I have a fit rep issue. I mean, I, I never had anybody in the ranks to do that. So Keith, I can really relate to what you're saying. I mean, you were going into all these commands, and you didn't have a black leader that you could look to and say, okay, how did he do it? And if I run into problems, how do I fight this issue? How do I move through this circumstance? And until we have more people at the top who, who look like us, um, I, I really believe that this, these issues are gonna continue because people will hide the fact that they're using biased uh, judgments uh, by bringing up things that are superfluous and bringing up things that aren't, have, any, have nothing to do, but could be shaded in a way to make it seem like that was the issue when we all know that that really wasn't the issue. And I think that's one of the problems um, is, is also how do we get those, those leaders? How do we promote more and, and grow our minorities and, and, our, and our people of color? Because until that happens, I, I think this is going to continue to be a problem. I think that's key to fixing the problem is, is elevating uh, people to, to the higher ranks um, that have that have faced these kinds of issues and that can advise the people coming behind us. And until we get to that point, it's important that the people in power look at what's happening right now. Why does this black officer spit rep read differently 
than the rest of the other pit reps. There may be minute differences, but the reason you see the results you have now is because 20 years ago, nobody spoke up and questioned the status quo. People like John Cordell are pushing this issue and saying these are the things that we need to look at. That's a direct example of sponsorship. The, the, the relationship you described with your mentor, we need sponsors, people that are in positions of power that will reach back and grab someone and say, hey, you've got potential. I'm going to watch your career. I'm going to go to bat for you. I'm going to help you. I had a crusty Navy captain who came to my rescue because I went into a maintenance organization, resource denial, another problem. I had a warrant officer that was slow walking a, uh, a Navy mobile wet trainer I decided to build because the funding went away for the one that was there on the East Coast. So I had a crusty boatswain main master chief said, we can build our own. So we started it and got most of the way, but then we ran out of expertise and materials. So I convinced my Commodore to ask the SEMA uh, shore maintenance facility to take it over. And the guy that was running that job was a warrant officer. And he thought it was fun to jerk me around and to keep delaying the progress. And I had six men that were going over there to help. Him. So I finally went and talked to him and I said, look, I need you to stop uh, slow walking this work. I said, I've got people that are ready. I want you to get this done. And he assured me, well, the next day he canceled the, the job, uh, sent, sent all my guys home. So when I went in the next day, um, we had a bunch of heated words, and none of them were professional. And then I went and followed him down to the maintenance meeting, and then I cursed his boss out, told him he wasn't doing his job. As far as I was concerned, he had one job, and that was the job I was there for him. And then I pointed to the warrant officer's, I said, he's the problem. He thinks this crap is funny. And I didn't say crap. So he ordered me to go back to the warrant officer's office. Well, they had a lot of rope in that building. And there's no way I was going to go sit in that office back in the corner. So I went back to my office. And I waited for the phone call that I knew was coming. My chief staff officer called me up in a, in a panic, wanting to know what had happened. The captain wants you court-martialed, and et cetera, et cetera. I explained to him what was going on. And he said, meet me out in front of your office in five minutes. And when we, as we're going over to the, uh, maintenance uh, facility. I explained to him what had been going on, and that's when we walked into the captain's office. And this guy is spitting nails. He is angry because I've just been over there, just disrespectful all over the place. Problem was, everything he was saying wasn't true, and I had the documentation in my hand to prove it. So when he was done, my captain looked at me and he said, "That's not true." He said, "Keith," and that's when I laid it all out, and everything that he'd been saying was wrong. So his people were lying to him to cover up their own malfeasance. So by the time that was all done, they worked around the clock for three days on a holiday weekend trying to get that war wagon. So all of these sailors were impacted. Their weekend plans and family plans were all impacted because one warrant officer thought it was fun to jerk screw around with this black lieutenant. And then when he got caught, all of his people paid the price for that. So resource denial was a, was a constant theme in my, uh, career but what helped me was being able to document that it was happening right and that's it saved me. yeah and, and doing it in a way that in doing and that's the part that's hard about all of this is that when it happens you know because i i feel like i've definitely in certain points in my career and it's it's tough because it's hard not to get emotional it really is because you know it's happening you know it's unfair but it's like you have to figure out a way to solve it. And documentation is really the best way I have found. Documentation, evidence, when you present your case, 
be as unemotional and as factual as possible um, when these things happen. And, and they suck, ultimately. Like this, this organization can be so great and it can make so much good stuff happen for so many people. And I just see it like, what a shame. Like, let, let's all just get along, enjoy each other, and make the best of our time. And so why did you decide after 20 years, you said for 20 years you weren't going to talk about this, you weren't going to, you know, share your story. Uh, what happened after 20 years that made you decide that this was a story you were going to share? Well, it ate at me for the 20 years that I didn't say anything. I never got another job after I left the Navy. I would uh, start to fill out, work on a resume or fill out a job application, and my hands would start to sweat. It was just very traumatic for me. I did go see a mental health counselor when I was dealing with that last guy because I had an emotional breakdown. I was on the verge of violence with this guy. My sister said, you need to talk to someone. And I went and talked to this counselor, a social worker, and she told me, after I explained to her what was happening, she said, there is no excuse for what has happened. And that gave me the courage to go ahead and file my complaint. But I decided after watching the run-up to the, as I said, the 2016 election, all of this, you know, vitriol and you know, scapegoating of minorities and stuff, I said, the people at the at the leadership level set the tone. This is going to filter down throughout the ranks. And I was absolutely right about that. I've been following all this stuff. I said, someone needs to explain what has happened and what may happen. Because I did not want to see any more violence on board naval bases, on board ships, on board military commands. I shudder to think of what might have happened if the President of the United States had unleashed the Department of Defense on protesters following the George Floyd uh, protest. I mean, we've been there before. In New Jersey, National Guardsmen were shooting into windows of people that looked out the window to see what was going on. They were firing into the windows indiscriminately. We've been there before, and I did not want to see that happen again. So I wanted to try to point out to DOD that if we don't get a handle on this division that's, that's uh, existing in our armed forces, we're going to, we're going to re repeat the cycles of the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. The other thing I wanted was to try to encourage other people to come forward with their stories. Because I'm just one disgruntled guy with a story to tell. But I've had so many people reach out to me and thank me for telling my story. And there are multiple people that are working on telling their own stories right now, including one who's got a very famous story that will reset what we think we know about the Golden 13. A big piece of that story is missing. And I know the guy that can tell it because... He's got all the documents and the documentation approved. So I'm hoping that he tells his story. No, that's great. And I will tell you, I really enjoyed I didn't find the comment that you told me about Vice Admiral Melvin's uh, son. I didn't see that one. I was like going down. But you had 93 comments on your book uh, on Amazon. And it was so fascinating to see how many people had served with you and had worked with you at some point and they, they left a comment about your character and about who you were. And I thought that was, that must have been a, a really good feeling. And that must have been somewhat therapeutic, I would think, to go. Absolutely. To, you know what I mean? To like see all the people who came out after you wrote the book. Some of those reviews left me in tears, I'll be honest with you. And okay. some of those people know people that I served with. And some of those people, I have people that, that whose careers I helped save 
and this is no exaggeration, who will not comment on the book because they're afraid of retaliation or because they are traumatized by what happened to them or because in at least one case, they're embarrassed by some of the things that I wrote, which happened to be true, which were acknowledged to be true. But telling the truth does not necessarily win you friends. Yeah, and and like, even with me and the way I share stories, Keith, I'm very careful. I, 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 I navigate my stories in, in, in a certain way. Um, and it, it gets exhausting at times, <laughs> sometimes, to be quite honest with you, the way in which I have to tell a story. But I, I do that because, um, you know, I'm still serving. I'm active duty. I, I have a lot to lose. And, and also, I don't really want to re-traumatize people who see a situation completely differently than myself. And I really don't want to get into a back and forth with a particular person who I feel has probably not done some nice things to me. So I try to be very careful about how I tell a story and how I frame my narrative to where I just talk about how it impacted me and the ways in which I handled the situation uh, in an effort, like you say, to help others people come forward and share their stories too. I mean, I, I think that, like I always say, every single one of you guys out there have stories to share. That's why my podcast is Stories of Service. When we share our stories, we're providing a service. So I think what you're doing, Keith, is great. I just, I love following your posts on LinkedIn. You always just take current issues and you give your analysis of what's going on with the issue. And it's just so spot on and brutally honest. And I, I think I want to get into that too, because you're, you know, you're pretty active on LinkedIn. How do you handle the trolls and the people who come at you because you do you get a lot of vitriol because you're just you're very blunt you're very factual um how do you how do you handle the the negative the negative comments and the feedback well i, I what i try to do is drill down to do you have an issue with the issue or do you have an issue with me if you <laughs> have a counterpoint to contradict what i've said please lay it out or please give me the reasons why i'm wrong but instead right. they attack me so more often than not, when I when I handle it that way, they just sort of go away. I've been called a racist. I've been called you know divisive. I've been called all these things, and no one attacks my argument. They attack me. So that tells me I'm on the right path. Yes. It does. One of the things I try to do is to be fair. And um, if you're not being fair, if you're I hate talking politics because nobody's going to win there, and I'm sure as hell not going to talk abortion because nobody's going to win there. Um, so I just try to deal with the facts. And if you can drill down to the why question, why is this person angry? Because I posted a news story and expressed what I thought to be the truth about it. And more often than not, they'll sort of disappear. But I've had just more trolls than you can count. And But more often than not, they're not upset because I'm saying something that isn't true. They're upset because I'm saying something that is true or pointing out something they would rather not be pointed out. Yeah. Um, so as we close out the show, I want to kind of leave people with with some of the things that you know you you brought up some really good things that I'd, we'd like to see with the military. And I'm always about tangible solutions. Like, what is it that's actionable that we could do? The the renaming of of, of bases and of ships that that bear Confederate or, or racist ties to me that seems seems especially in this day and age to be a no brainer. Publishing the statistics, uh, making making the process for complaints uh, more transparent, 
uh, to people, again, as we saw in this DEP trial, uh, transparency heals. When we see a man being a domestic violence survivor, um, it, it changes the game. I mean, like, you know, say what you want about celebrity and spectacle and all that, but just to see a man in that situation, that was powerful for me because most of my, um, you know, abusers have been women and, and, and no one ever wants to see a woman as an abuser. And so for right. me, it, it was very therapeutic, to be quite honest, to see uh, people exposing uh, Amber Heard because we just don't see that uh, in, in mainstream media. And it reminds me of the importance of transparency. So I do believe there needs to be more transparency within the military. Publishing a study, which is what we always seem to do when there's a problem, we publish, we have some big commission, and then we do a you know 90 to 100 page study with all these suggestions. And then you never really hear about like what happened with all those suggestions and where are we today? So can you name any of the good things that have come out recently? Because I want to also, we'll do the, the, we'll do the five things that you would love to see change on the bad front. And then we'll leave on a good note and say some of the things that we've seen that have gotten better. Well, the good things that have come out is the leadership has shown that they're willing to listen. They're willing to gather all this information you know, they're going to produce and have produced all these other studies, but the information is now out there and it is important that they do something other than issuing a, a, a report with recommendation. The good thing is you have leaders who are now willing to ask questions and then act on that information. Uh, I think that's a good thing. The good thing, the naming of the USS uh, Frank Peterson. I've read his memoir. He went through a, a terrible amount of uh, uh, discrimination. I read Larry Chambers' memoir about uh, Rick, uh, uh, Rick, uh, I forget his last name, but he wrote a memoir about Larry, uh, uh, Larry Chambers, the first black to command an aircraft carrier. He disobeyed an order by his embarked flag commander because it was an immoral order, and he saved the lives of people that are now uh, uh, Vietnamese uh, Army uh, uh, officer and his pregnant wife and four kids. He allowed them to land on that aircraft carrier. He published his memoir. So there are a lot of stories that are coming out. And it's important that as the more stories come out, the harder it is to ignore those. I talked to uh, people at Task Force One Navy, and I talked to people in the uh, chairman of the Joint Chief Staff Office. And I told them, until you start holding accountable people accountable, nothing's going to change. It doesn't matter what the reports say until the leadership steps up and says, as General Milley did when dealing with the uh, uh, a junior congressman. I want to know this stuff. You know, I want to learn this stuff. If you're willing to entertain that you may not know everything you need to know, that's a good thing. So the good thing is leadership is stepping up and, uh, and confronting these issues and making changes. Good. Well, I hope to see more of those changes. You know, keep up the fight, Keith. It's, it's well appreciated. People like me who are still serving, we're thankful that people like yourself are, are out there and in front and talking about these issues and trying to make things better um, because there's a lot of issues that happen and, and sometimes they're going to go unaddressed unless people are willing to speak up and speak out. So I want to thank you so much uh, for joining for joining me on the call today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I didn't ask about or anything else you'd like to put out to, to the audience? I would like to point out to the audience, I said this to you in print, but I want to say it directly to you. You are one of the best recruiting tools that the military has right now. 
you're showing a lot of vulnerability, you're showing a lot of interest, you're showing a lot of, you're taking a certain amount of risk, but you're humanizing military service for people that may or may not uh, know what it's like. And you're giving hope to people that are going through some of the things that, that you've had to deal with. And I commend you for that. I wish I'd had the courage to do that when I was on active duty, but I didn't. So I commend you for that. And people need to look, seek out and listen to the stories that you're telling because they're important. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate that. I love doing this. It's a labor of love. I do it if five people were listening or 5,000. I really don't care. It's just, it's something I, I love doing. And it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be in this position and to have the interviewing skills that I do and the skills that I have in, in broadcasting now and be able to do this and to continue to bring these stories to life. So with that, um, I'm just stick around for a second, Keith. I would like to say goodbye, but I want to thank all of you guys for watching. I know there are a few more questions in the chat, so I will get to those a little later, but we do need to get off here, and we will have another one of these hopefully next week. Oh, my friend Inga just came on. I do want to show her comment. Thank you so much, Keith, for sharing your stories and all you do. Keep up the good fight. Inga is a dear friend of mine. She was on one of my prior podcasts, and she's in the animal advocacy space, so she's a lobbyist in Hawaii who fights for on, on behalf of animals. So there, there's advocates in, in all walks of life, Keith. That's it's right. Such a pleasure to, to have so many friends that are that are willing to be the fighters that you guys are. So thank you so much, everyone, for watching, for joining us tonight. Happy Sunday and enjoy your next week. Bye-bye now. <laughs>